Um, we have more stay-at-home dads in America now than ever. It's doubled over the last decade and a half. Working moms are now the primary income earners in 15% of married households with children. The most re- recent census figures show that the, for the first time, Americans living in a nuclear family has dipped below 25%. Contrast these trends to the 1950s, when society accepted modern, that a modern family consisted of a uh, breadwinning father, submissive housewife, and a couple of respectful biological children. Where'd those kids go to? So what's caused the sharp change in, in the landscape of family over the last 60 years? Well, according to Jonathan Fitzgerald, author of Mother, uh, Not Your Mother's Morals, one of the most influential forces that has changed the landscape of families over the last 60 years has been television. Back in the 1950s, um, we had the shows like Leave it to Beaver and um, what was the other one here? Father Knows Best. And, and it depicted a family of a heterosexual, patriarchal, church-going unit with innocent children. But in the 60s, things changed a little bit. We had a new TV program that came on called The Andy Griffith Show that portrayed the concept of a single parent family who was raising his little son, Opie, you all remember Opie, those of you my age, and he was raising him all on his own with no problem, and it was from the death of his spouse, not divorce. And it led to conversation of the character of Andy Taylor, a small-town sheriff who was perfectly fine of raising his son and, 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 and doing well at it. He still had strong traditional values within the family. And the show was actually quite progressive for its time in that it provided a platform for some Americans to evaluate new ideas when it comes to family. In 1969, the Los Angeles Times ran an article stating that 30% of marriages in the United States have children from previous marriages. That article opened the door for TV producers to produce the TV program called The Brady Bunch. And in The Brady Bunch, we were introduced to Mike Brady, who was a widower, and he married Carol, and the two of them brought three children each into this blended family. The producers wanted to write Carol in as a divorcee, but the network head people said, not going to happen. That was in 1969. Divorce still carried the stigma, but they had this blended family that came together at that time. And, and everybody looked at them in this new picture of family and said they looked pretty normal to us. And so as Americans, we just accepted it. After all, the Bradys were like our neighbors. They just had a blended family. There's a lot of TV family shows that have come and gone throughout the decades. And in 1987, a TV sitcom came out with an entire different view of family that year. And it was entitled Married with Children. And the TV producers seemed less interested in portraying a non-traditional family than exploring the dysfunctions of traditional families. 
until shows like Married with Children and The Simpsons diverged from the Leave it to Beaver model to undermining the idea that a family must operate smoothly at all times. Despite its con, uh, controversial nature, audiences turned into Married with Children for decades. And together we all breathed the sigh of relief that our families weren't quite so messy. Then in 2009, TV producers took a big change in direction and brought to the viewers a show called Modern Family. This hit show might be the most progressive show ever garner such a high level of success because it takes all the non-traditional family elements of the last 60 years and crams them into a single sitcom. Jay and Gloria give us the divorcees, blended family, and biracial component. Mitchell and Cameron give us the gay couple. And Claire and Phil provide, with a, provide us with a strong woman and a submissive husband in addition to the dysfunctional aspects of traditional family. You take all that together, modern family embodies the diverse definition of family now held by contemporary Americans. Yet modern family is, even though it's... Um, got this crazy mix to it and everything, it is still strangely conservative. They don't grandstand on any controversial issues. Uh, they don't take an opportunity to bash people. They value family. Family values are big on it. And so it really has an appeal to people from both sides of the aisles, those who are uh, embracing family values and those who are embracing the non-traditional family. And it's made a hit in the U.S. But those aren't the only family TV, uh, TV families we've seen, these non-fictional ones. We have now the whole host of reality TV families invading our homes. And what a joy it is to watch them implode and make a mess of their lives and watch divorce and watch children be rebellious and watch all kinds of other unbelievable things that families do to each other. We get to watch it live in front, and, and the whole nation gets to see it all take place. And we call it entertainment. Yeah. I was a little bit nervous this morning when um, we started worship because... I thought that maybe a whole bunch of you had already read ahead in Colossians chapter 3 and decided this would be a good Sunday not to come to church. And you'll see why in a minute. Because what Paul does now is he's, he's moving our attention to our homes. That we are to live in the fullness of Christ. Paul will deal with the home in three categories. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and slaves. And Paul's writing in regard to the family was radical. It's what has paved the way for us to enjoy the rights and privileges that we all have. And it is truly what a modern family is to be like. You're going to find the passages of Scripture we're talking about today to push up on you. They're going to push hard in some of your lives in some ways that you don't want to deal with. 
we're going to be reminded of things that we should be doing that maybe we're not doing. And so before we step right into it, let me pray for all of us, okay? Father, we know that, that you bring difficult things to us all the time. And when we read it, sometimes we scratch our head and go, why would God say such a thing like that? I thought he loved us. Or what does he really mean by that? And so this morning as we take a look at this passage where you're talking to particularly husbands and wives, I pray that our hearts and our ears would be open, that your spirit would be able to do his work in our lives to help us to understand who you are, who we are, and how we're supposed to live in this, this thing called marriage. And so open our hearts to you this morning and have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Colossians three eighteen and 19. Those are the two verses we're looking at today. We'll move around a little bit in the Bible to help you see some things. But Paul, let me read the verses to you. Submit, or wives submit to your husbands, as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, Paul is still following the theme of the letter where we're supposed to be complete in Christ. And we are to be complete in our domestic um, relationships as well. They're no different than in our personal one with God. Paul's not writing to people who do not know the power of Christ at work in their lives, but rather he's writing to Christ-following wives and Christ-following husbands, and he's giving them some very clear instruction. And matter of fact, this instruction is radical in its teaching on spousal relationships. Little seven-year-old Susie had just come back from the theater where she saw the movie Cinderella. And as she was saw her neighbor lady and was testing her knowledge about the story. And the neighbor was really anxious to tell little Susie that she knew a lot about the story. So she said to Susie, I know what the ending is. And Susie says, really? What's the ending? And the, the neighbor lady said, Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after. And Susie looked at her with a frown and said, oh, no, they didn't. They got married. There are a lot of women that would agree with Susie. I got married and I gave up on happily ever after. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words. Now listen to these words. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. I don't know any five words ever that will invoke the ire of modern Assertive, right-seeking, power-seeking culture more than wives submit to your husbands. As a matter of fact, just the word submit brings on and carries a stigma of bondage. And I've had more conversations with more women on the whole topic of what it means to submit or being submissive to your husbands. What does all that mean? And before we get into the biblical definition of it, I want you to understand what Paul was dealing with at the time that he wrote this letter. I want you to understand where the woman in the marriage stood. And so here's, here's some uh, history for you. 
at the time of the writing of the letter, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She uh, had no, uh, she was a possession of her husband, just like his house or his flocks or his material goods were just a possession. She had no legal right whatsoever. In Greek society at the same time, um, a respectable live woman lived a life entirely of seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the market. She lived in the woman's apartment and did not join her menfolk for meals. From where, from her, there was a demand of complete servitude and chastity. But her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside the marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. Now, guys, don't step into it. Don't yield the temptation. Go to your wife. So what's wrong with that? Because all that's going to do is just prove you to be the barbaric that she already thinks you are. All right? So hold your tongue a little bit, and we'll get into this. The biblical definition to submit is one that is found and based on our love for Jesus and our desire to submit to him as Lord of our life. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll free from you. You know that Jesus has his best in mind for you. He, he really does. And, on, and all he's asking you to do is to submit to him and follow his lead. And when you find yourself following Jesus' lead and submitting to him, you will grow more intimate in your relationship with Jesus than you could have ever imagined before in your life. And you start to understand how much he loves you. And God exhorts women to voluntarily, get that word, voluntarily, Follow their husband's leadership. A wife shows submission to her husband when she allows him to take leadership in the relationship. A submissive wife must first learn to trust God's goodness and sovereignty. It is out of this trust in God that a wife will find possible to submit to her husband. I'm just going to, right here, I'm just going to puke it all out right in front of you, okay? Here's what the bottom line is, ladies. If you have never come to the place where you are ready to submit your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you will never be able to submit to your husband the way the Bible calls you to. Because Jesus has lordship over everybody's life. And and he doesn't tell us. It's not compulsory. He's not telling us you have to submit. What he's saying is, I'm giving you a chance because I'm the Lord of all the universe. I control everything that goes on. And so you can either come and submit to me or you can continue to walk in rebelliousness. And that's what God says. And, and, and it's, it's God's design for us. Now, I want you to understand this, ladies, that a submissive wife is not relegated to idly sitting by while her family makes, while her husband makes all the family decisions. In a healthy marriage, a husband and wife work as a team. When a decision cannot be jointly agreed upon, a leader must make the decision. 
And, and that is the husband, knowing he is responsible foremost to God for the decision. In these circumstances, or in a decision that the husband must make, a submissive wife is not overstepping her boundaries by offering counsel. A submissive woman also offers abundant encouragement to her husband. Understanding that making a decision is a heavy responsibility on a man's shoulders. The responsibility that is given to a husband is given by God. And when a wife does not recognize that God-given authority, it is the making for a very difficult and long life filled with strife and dissatisfaction in marriage. Let me take you to... Ephesians 5, because Paul also wrote there about husbands and wives. 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here Paul's making a clear distinction as to what Biblical submission looks like. Paul says that that you are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The legitimate meaning of this directive follows the theology present throughout the Ephesians letter. That is, Jesus is the primary focus of our lives, and it's out of a wife's relationship and focus on Christ that empowers her, motivates her, and is the source for her qualification of her submission to her husband. Also, the wife is also to to submit to her own husband. She is not accountable to any other man. or um, She's not accountable to her husband's best friend. She's not accountable to her father-in-law. She's not even accountable to the pastor, to her husband, her own husband. Is what the Word of God says. And her love for her husband and her desire to, to live with him in harmony flows out of her love and submission to Jesus as the ultimate authority in her life. It goes on in this passage to say that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife brings shivers up some women's spine. They can't imagine themselves. They can never comprehend the idea or foresee themselves submitting to their husbands as the head of their relationship. And for good reason. Many of the men in our churches do not follow the principles and instructions of a godly husband. Therefore, it's difficult for a wife to want to submit to her husband in everything. It's unconceivable for her to submit to one who looks nothing like Jesus. It's God's call on our lives. To live this way. There's a reason he's got it. And the idea that Paul is bringing to the marriage table is that the word head does not mean boss or the person in charge. 
the focus is not on authority, but on the self-giving love of both Christ and the husband. The husband has the leadership role, though not in order to boss his wife or use his position as privilege. Paul redefines being head as having responsibility to love, to give oneself, and to nurture. A a priority is placed on the husband, but contrary to ancient society, it is for the benefit of the wife. Although Paul makes explicit the priority or responsibility of the husband, the text also assumes the oneness and equality of the husband and wife. Equal. No hierarchy. When Paul says in everything, this indicates all spheres of life are included in the submission. Provided, of course, that it is in keeping with a life lived to the Lord. Outside of that, if your husband's asking you to do something that is outside of biblical mandate, you do not submit to sin. We don't do that. The focus of this verse is not on um, the privilege and dominance of the husband. Paul never intended to suggest that wives were servants, compelled to follow any and every desire of the husband. The text does not tell the woman, get this, to obey their husband, nor does it give any license for the husband to attempt to force submission. Here's why it's important. For all of us to understand this passage, get this, the church, this gathering of Christ followers, as we submit to Christ in everything, that sets the example for wives to submit to their husbands. If we as a collective group of disciples are not willing to submit to Christ, we send a message that it's not important to submit, when in fact, It's the most important part of following Jesus. When we submit to Jesus, we are declaring that he has authority over every aspect of our lives, individually and corporately. We willingly give him his rightful place over all things. Unfortunately, there are some women that are not satisfied with this. They want to be in charge. But realistically, marriage cannot operate this way. Unity requires relational structure. We see this in in other relation patterns in relationships. But submission is never a sign of value. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father when he said he'd go to the cross. It would be heresy to say that Jesus is lesser value than the Father. They are one, and Jesus cannot be of lesser value. His submission had nothing to do with his value. It had to do with God-ordained structure. It is the same with a husband and wife. As a matter of fact, God was the one who brought value to women. Long before it was popular or a fad, to promote women's things. God has been doing it for centuries. And we're just now getting on board with it. 
The thing about submission is it takes humility. It also takes a lot of prayer and relying on the Holy Spirit. But so does godly leadership. Women can look to Jesus as an example and reflect his love and sacrifice as they lovingly choose to submit to their husband, the husband God has placed in their lives. Now, when most people who either read the Bible just to find things to throw in the face of Christ's followers, or they're just reading it for whatever reason, and they don't read it for understanding for what God has to say, when they come across this verse, a wife is to submit to her husband, here's what they think it means to submit. This is what the world thinks biblical submission is. Okay? The husband should make all the important financial and other decisions for the relationship. This is not what the Bible teaches. I'm telling you this is what people outside of the Word of God think when they hear we ta- us talking about a wife submitting to her husband. The husband and wife should work together on all important decisions, but the husband has the final say. The husband should go out and earn the family's bread, and the woman should stay home and bake it. The husband is the president, and the wife is the executive vice president. The husband should control the TV remote. (laughs) That's what they think about Christians. That's how we, you know. The wife, here's, here's the last one. The wife takes care of the kids, cleans the house, does the laundry, cooks all the meals, waits and with anticipation on her husband's next command. That's what they think biblical submission is. But it couldn't be anything further from the truth because what Paul seems to believe that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit and if you want to live out of reverence for Christ, then you will instinctively submit to each other. You'll yield the right of way. Submit is not a synonym for subservient, menial bondage. The appeal here is to to give us free responsibility, to give us as people the responsibility and the, the love that God intended. And submission can only be heeded voluntarily. The bottom line is this. If you cannot submit to your husband, you will not submit to Jesus until you've come under the authority of Christ, you will find no joy in submitting to your husband as Paul encourages you to do. Biblical submission is a joy. It brings freedom, not bondage. It will give a wife strength and security that she would otherwise not know. All right, ladies, you can take a breath because we're going to go after the guys now. Lock the doors at the back. Don't let it, don't anybody in the bathroom either. All right, men. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I want to go right away to the instructions for husbands that Paul gives in Ephesians 5 as it gives us a more detailed understanding of what is required and what the implications are for a husband. Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. All right, we're going to get into this and talk about it a little bit. But ladies, as you're sitting next to your husband, can you just could you do me one small favor? Keep your elbows in. Don't let it fly out like this into his rib, okay? Just, you don't need to be the Holy Spirit. He's here, and he'll do his work. I promise you. And I'm not him either. Here Paul is asking the husband to live and give themselves with the same self-giving love that Christ had in giving himself to the church. Both the directions to the wife to submit and the husband to love only make specific commands that have already been made to the entire church. So what, what Paul's doing isn't he's saying this is especially true for women and this is especially true for, for men who are married. It is true for the entire body of Christ to submit and to love. It's already been pointed out to us. But we still need to go through it. Now, it, it, it's under, you know, Paul's words to women seem negative to us when we first take a look at it. But in his day, they were surprisingly positive. Now, it's not clear why Paul did not tell the wives to love rather than to submit. But both commands are grounded in Christ. I, I don't know. I, I can't say this for sure, but I think my wife's way more loving than I am. And so it's, it's, a, it's a need I have in my life to be filled with the Holy Spirit to love. The end result is that submission and agape love are synonymous. If anything, the stronger language is used in the husband's responsibility. The ancient world, in the ancient world, Husbands had relatively few obligations beyond providing food and shelter. They were free to do as they pleased, whereas wives were obligated to do domestic chores and to do whatever their husbands required. Paul's words changed the picture dramatically. Rather than being guided by self-interest, the husband is to take, is to um, ask Let me start that again. Rather than being guided by self-interest, the husband is asked to place the well-being of his wife first to give himself to caring for her. The end of this love is that the husband is called to provide for his wife and is extremely more involved than the, the natural love a man has for a woman that is mostly seeing in feelings and attitudes. The natural love that a husband expresses to his wife is significantly insufficient for that of a marriage of Christ's followers. Here's why it's true. Paul is instructing the disciples of Christ to forego their own rights, interests, and desires for the sake of his wife and care that, the, that requires a different idea who who a husband is called to be. 
The mindset of many men is that they bring the leadership to the relationship. And even though they may not say it forthright, but by their actions, they see themselves as greater than their wives. Jesus made it clear that greatness is so much different than what our society portrays. In Matthew 20, Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must learn to be the servant. And whoever wants to be first must learn to be a slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus not only turned leadership upside down on its head, because leadership always had people serving the leader. And in Jesus' leadership model, the leader serves those under. And he also turned leadership in the household, the husband on his head. Because now he's telling you to serve your wife and your children. That's your top priority. This is completely contrary to the norm in Jesus' day. And it is distinctly different from what we know today in our culture. To be a godly husband, father, and leader, you must be a servant and have a willingness to be last. Carrying on in Ephesians 5. 28 through 31, and including verse 33. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife uh, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let his wife see that she respects her husband. Let me address three areas in these verses. First, there are a lot of men who will spend enormous amounts of money on themselves and barely a red cent on their wives and shame on them. That's naughty. There's nothing more noticeable to a woman than the fact that their husband will go spend a bunch of money on stuff he wants and she gets nothing or very little. I know guys who have spent all kinds of money to go to the gym and get a gym membership so they can work out and and look really tough. But they leave no money for their wife to pay the bills, and the weight of that is on her shoulders. Second, the command for a husband to leave his parents and make his wife his new family is a huge deal in our culture. I can't tell you how many women have come into my office in a marriage counseling situation complaining that they feel like they're a second-rate citizen in the family because their husband makes their, his family a priority over her life. Her needs are always gone unmet. She feels like she doesn't have any say and that, that, that she does not fit in with the family because the husband puts the needs of his, his other family, his mom and dad, over hers and the home will not be in harmony when that happens. But ladies, it's not just the men that need to leave and cleave. It applies not just to the husband, it applies to you. You need to cut the apron strings. If you want a strong marriage, if you want something that is going to last for 50, 65 years, you and your husband have got to become one flesh. I can't tell you how important it is. 
The third thing, men, is you're to love your wife as yourself. It's just mind-boggling how much men just want to keep their wives at home, taking care of the children. And they'll go hunting, they'll go fishing, they'll go four-wheeling, they'll go shed hunting, they'll go all kinds of things. And the wife is supposed to be subservient and stay at home and wash the dishes and do the laundry and take care of the kids. And by the way, when I walk in the front door, dinner better be made. And you know what the tragedy of all that is? Today's culture is that in order to survive in this culture, both the husband and the wife have to work. And yet there are a lot of men who are placing still all the responsibility on women. You know how to wash dishes? It's not that hard. By the way, when you're walking past the sink and you go to throw a dish in the sink with all the rest of the dirty dishes, how long is it actually going to take you to wash those dishes, put them in the drainer, dry them, and then put them away? Probably about 15 minutes. And I'm going to tell you something. Guys, just in case you didn't know this, ladies, plug your ears. Romance starts at the kitchen sink. (laughs) Telling you, you want your wife to think you're just the hottest thing in a pair of jeans? Go wash dishes. All right. I get myself all messed up here when I do that kind of stuff. All right, let's move on. Still in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 and 32. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a mystery, is profound, and I'm saying it, saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I think that... We all have a good idea that Christ gave himself up for the church. I must not be feeling well because I just heard some voices. All righty. Are we okay? Am I okay? All right, let's. Let's go on. We know that Jesus gave himself for the church. We know that he, he, that was his purpose. That's why he came to this earth. It was part of his purpose. You know, he spent three years leading, modeling, teaching his disciples what they were to do after he left. They would become the boots on the ground, as it were. But Jesus never used the analogy of that of his disciples to that of being an army. In an army, the commander gives a command and it's obeyed without question. The harder place to serve is in a marriage relationship. There is constant communication required. There are struggles that have to be worked out and there is an idea that this relationship requires more 
than what we can produce, humanly speaking. Jesus came to sanctify the church, and that means that he wants to set us apart for the Father's use. That we should live our lives, and that once again we would imitate God's character. To be sanctified and cleansed without blemish is the process that Jesus says he will continue to do as we submit our wills and our lives and our agendas over to him. The picture that Paul wants us to get is that Jesus is that Jesus is what a perfect husband looks like in relationship to the church. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, he will continue to care for us, nurture us, provide for us, and give us all that we need to be holy and without blemish. This is not a one-and-done kind of a work. It is a, a lifetime of work of Jesus working in and through us by his Holy Spirit as he has promised to do. He will take us through all the difficulties of life. He will be with us like a faithful husband should be. When you see a couple who's been married for 50 years, you have the perfect snapshot of Jesus and the church. Because they, they spend time together. Matter of fact, they start to look like each other. Have you ever noticed that? Like, I remember my grandpa and grandma. I was thinking like, one of you wasn't doing something right here when you guys got married because you look like him and you look like her. And, and it was freaky. But you know what? They were married for almost 60 years. My grandfather hardly had to say a word. And my grandmother knew what he needed or what he wanted. My grandmother didn't even have to tell my grandfather we're out of milk. He was walking out the back door to go to the grocery store to buy milk. And I looked at Grandma and I go, where's Grandpa going? He's going to get milk. Well, how did he know he needed milk? He just knows. He just knows. He knows. Uh, a man who's been with a woman for 50 years knows, knows every need that she has before she even asks for it. It's like, it's like a dance this couple goes through. They, they start to, to move and... And they get into this rhythm with each other. They're in sync and they move effortlessly. No struggle, no misstep. It's a joy to watch. And if you've ever watched an older couple dance, they do it with grace. And that's what our relationship as a husband and wife is supposed to be like because that's the relationship that Jesus wants with the church. Jesus is more in love with us than we can ever imagine. And we will only have a lifetime to fully grasp the depth of his love for us, which means we only have a lifetime to express the love that we have for our spouses. Sometimes it's cut short. Sometimes you're thinking you had more time to spend with your spouse before they were taken, before God took them away from you. You didn't get to express This relationship with Jesus is a profound mystery. Because unlike us in our marriage relationship, Jesus never gives us a nasty glance when we say something or when we didn't do what we were supposed to do. He doesn't come in and do this to us. When we've, when we've gone to places... Financially, we shouldn't have gone to. He's not dropping the hammer on us and calling us names. He slips his arm around us and he says, you know what? 
You didn't do very good there, did you? Nope, sure didn't. Well, let's try better next time, and I'm going to help you. See, that's what a loving husband looks like. And the wife responds because she loves her husband, because here's the image of Jesus standing before her in flesh. She's looking at him, and she's going like, I can't believe how much I've grown in love with you. I will walk across hot coals for you. You ask me to go to the grocery store, I'll go to Walmart for you. That's a submissive woman. But, you know, it's that kind of relationship that we want, that we're looking at. And when we read these passages, there are a couple of issues that could arise out of it. Because we're talking about husbands and wives and and married people. And yet, there's single people sitting in here going like, am I left out of the picture? And Paul says, no, you're not left out in the cold. It, It... At first glance, it looks like the main emphasis is about married people. But that's not the main emphasis. The main emphasis, it's all about Jesus and our relationship to Him. And and that He loves us like a perfect husband would love us, whether you're married or single, whether you're young or you're old. He loves you perfectly as though you're the bride walking down the the center aisle of the church to be given away for the first time in all your splendor and glory, in all the magnitude and the the pomp and circumstance that's going on and the celebration's going to happen because you're the bride and the bridegroom's waiting and Jesus is the bridegroom and you are the beautiful bride that He loves more than anything in this world. We're all his bride. And in that, we're called to submit to Jesus' leadership and authority. And when I want, I, I'm throwing the curveball in here now. Okay, here it comes. Because you think that you're the only one that has to do the submitting. But in Ephesians 5.21, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. Get the picture? That guy that you're sitting next to that you said I do to? He has an obligation, responsibility before God to also be submissive. Because I'm going to tell you something. The reason God made Adam, I mean the reason why God took a rib out of Adam and made Eve is because we wouldn't even be able to find our way to the grocery store if we didn't have a wife to tell us how to get there. I'm going to confess something to you. Because I'm a guy, I don't have a very long focus time. I hear, but I really don't hear. I listen. And my confession is I had to go see the pharmacist five times this week. Because I didn't get the right stuff the first four times. And being a smart guy that I am, 
I said to the pharmacist, what do I need to get? And he said, here, go pay for this. The fifth time I was a hero. Who knew? But we need women in our lives because we will make a mess of things if we don't have them. God had a plan. Now, sometimes, ladies, you get the idea that what we as men really want to see is your beauty, your outward beauty. I have been with and talked with some very externally gorgeous women that are about the ugliest thing. They're uglier than 40 miles of bad road on the inside. Because what comes out of their mouth is just absolutely, I can't even describe it. I can't say it. But in First Peter 3, 5, it says, Do not let your adoring be external. The braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. That's, you know, the accessory. All that, that's the accessory. Here's the real beauty. But let your adoring be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husband. Did you get that? That inward beauty that you have is more of what, what your husband wants to see in you than all the braided hair and the shoes with eight-inch heels on them or whatever they are. I mean, they're crazy. But it's that gentle and that inextinguishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's not just precious to God. It means so much to the men in your life. And you might be saying, what's the big deal about that? Because Not just because it's precious in God's sight, but you're modeling. You're modeling what a godly woman looks like to young ladies who are still in middle school or in high school. You're modeling it to people who are women who are coming to faith and don't know what it looks like to be a Christ-following woman. You're modeling it also to those maybe who are seeking and they see the inward beauty of your spirit and they're going like, that is attractive to me as well as to God. All right, let's wrap this up. Um, for married couple, those of, and for those of you who are planning on getting married, here's a takeaway for you. First and foremost, your marriage is to glorify God. Bottom line. If it doesn't glorify God, then you need to take a look at what's going on and see what you need to fix it. How you interact with each other will reflect who God is to you and what you really believe about him. If you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, your entire being, you will find your relationship with your spouse reflects your relationship with God. If there's continual strife, arguing, fighting, bickering, Carrying on in your marriage, don't check this way. Check this way. Because if it's not right with God, it'll never be right with this one over here. Never. 
Second, you're modeling what a Christ-following marriage looks like to your children and also to your children's friends because a lot of them come from a place of brokenness. And they need to see what a Christian, Christ-following marriage looks like. They are influenced by what this culture is portraying through TV, movies, and by the laws that are being formed by our government. And sadly, it doesn't reflect a godly marriage at all. So when as a collective group of disciples, that's us, and we're willing to submit to Christ, then we're willing to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The most important part of following Jesus is submitting to his rule and authority over us. When we submit to Jesus, we're declaring that he has authority over every aspect of our individual and corporate lives. We love each other as Christ has loved us. We are willing to give him his rightful place over all things. We are his bride. He loves us deeply. And out of that, we love one another together and express our love and affection for him to each other. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you're our... uh, perfect example of what a godly husband looks like. But you've also painted the picture for us of what a godly wife looks like. And our heart's desire, God, is not to live in rebellion against you. But oftentimes we do rebel against you by the way that we interact with each other as husband and wife. So forgive us of those times when we have just been mean or rude or inconsiderate or harsh with one another. When we've chosen to not love rather than love, when we've chosen to be cantankerous instead of submitting, those are the times, God, when you're saying you are not being my children as I want you to be. I love you. And for the sake of your church and for the sake of families, God, I pray that your spirit would minister into the hearts and lives of every man, woman, and child here today, that they would live godly lives before you because they love you and they submit their lives to you. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.